Yes, he did. Happily yeah. so, too. Finally. Yes, he did. He didn't run away. I mean, uh, it, it is. It started. Oh. It is running. No, I'm not saying it. <laughs> We're in Psalm 119, yes, verse 1. With Aleph. 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 Strong, powerful leader. Oxhead. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and keep him with all their heart and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart. I will learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Not only, do not only, do not utterly forsake me. Do not utterly forsake me. All right. Well, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. And before we get there, we might as well read something about prayer. Prayer is the link that connects us with God. It is the bridge that spans every gulf and bears us over every abyss of danger or need. Good job, A.B. Simpson. All right. And then we'll have something about prayer in this Sunday's sermon when... Uh, the high priest goes into the holy place and into the most holy place. We'll talk about that a little bit, the symbolism there. So great stuff. Leviticus 16. I'm all excited to see how it turns out. Yes. Can't wait to see how it all turns out. Um, let's see here. What kind of prayers do we have? I emailed my friend Don. Haven't heard from him, but I emailed him this morning and I left early. So uh, we do know that uh, Paul is well enough to go out. He still, still gets tired, though, and he's... Uh, uh, you know, he, he won't stay out long, but he, he's getting out of the house and he's doing stuff. So we're really happy about that. And then um, is he healing, Charles? He's, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that it's slow, just like it was before he went into the hospital. Okay. It's just it's, you know, he had a stent removed. And so it's just it's just going to take time for him to get back full steam. But we hope that happens. Oh, yeah. And then we have. Lots of people that attend online from California, and um, so we certainly want to have them in prayer because so that is just, hey, man, what a, you know what, it's one of those things where you say, well, they're getting what they deserve. I'm not talking about the people, I'm talking about the, the policies of the state are naturally going to bring the wrath of God, but when it affects the people of God, then it becomes personal, you know what I mean? And mm -hmm. so, right. but that's the way it was in Israel. You've got to think about that. In Israel, there were good people and there were bad people. The good people suffered along with the bad people. But the Lord was there with them, and he promises all of us that things will, you know, in the end turn out good. But you have to suffer through the consequences of the immorality of other people in the Lord judging. And I have to think that everything that's happened in California over the past few years is the Lord showing disfavor. You know, you don't want to take that thing too far. You don't ever. You don't want to take this hurricane as, you know, you don't want to take that too far. But there's a point where things happen that... It, it just looks like it, it, there's a reason for it. And, it's you know, also an opportunity for people to... It's an opportunity look, for people to, to repent, to, to turn to the Lord, yeah. to tell other people about yes. the Lord and mm -hmm. all of the things that are tied up in that as yeah. well. And the Lord uses all kinds yeah. of means to make that happen. But it's it's terrible it's really to think hard. that the people that we know out there that are just facing this and 
how difficult it is. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the chance to come to you, to your throne of grace, even in times like this where California is suffering and we you know, we want to pray for them. We want to pray that they will be safe and that they will be delivered from this. And yet at the same time, we know that some things happen according to your will for your purposes so that, as Linda noted, maybe there's a reason why uh, a particular area is burning so that somebody will turn and say, you know what, I, I need you. And so these things are things that you direct, you are sovereign over every single thing, whether it's calamity in a city or whether it's, uh, uh, you know, a wave hitting the shore. Everything that happens is completely within your control, and we'll just leave it there. Your hands are capable to take care of them. And we do thank you that Paul is able to get out and to do a little bit, but we would ask for strengthening for him. And, of course, for all of the other people that are with us here or online that uh, have whatever is affecting their lives and their walk with you. We know Graham over in Scotland is, uh, uh, he's in pain, he's having difficulties, and we would pray that you would be with him. We just thank you, Lord, that we can come into your presence and ask these things, and we want to give you praise, we want to give you glory, and we also want to ask that you would help us to get through this class handling your word properly and not deviating from its precepts. And Lord, we certainly thank you for this precious word which you've given us. It is a treasure. What a treasure. So we want to praise you for it and exalt you for it. And we want to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in Romans 16. chapter 8. Yep, verse 16. So let me get there and you go ahead and read. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Okay, well that was a short little verse. Sure let me was. see how this reads here the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of god so all they did was turn around children of god and god's children same thing so uh there you go with that and uh let's see here and carol oh carol said she wouldn't be here i think somebody said they wouldn't be here today maybe it wasn't somebody said they wouldn't be here anyway um let's see here that the spirit bears witness of our state is a fairly common theme in the new testament one of several explicitly declared examples, which confirms this, is 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12. It says, now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that have been freely given us to us by God, that we have right there. As noted in 8.15, which was the previous verse, there is no universal fatherhood of God to humanity. We want to remember that. People talk about Oh, God is, he's the father of us all. And in a sense of creation, that is, that is absolutely true. But in a sense of adoption or of being in the family of God, that is completely not true. You know, we've talked about it a million times. You are either in Christ or you are in the devil. Right. It's one or the other. It's, there, there are no two, no three options or any other options. There is only those two. You're either in Christ or you are in the devil. So there's no universal fatherhood of God to humanity. Uh, though this is a commonly held tenet by people around the world, and a commonly taught doctrine by liberal Christian theologians, which you hear all the time, all the time. The problem with that is, is that they teach that, it gets into the churches, and then the churches have people in the churches, and they get home and they post that kind of nonsense on Facebook. Yeah. And if you post anything contrary to that, you've just made an enemy, because they think that God is the father of us all. And like I said, in our human state, that is correct as members of creation. But in our redeemed state, it is not even close. And people need to think these things through 
Um, I was uh, here earlier than normal today because uh, I had to go downtown, and so I left early, and I got here a few minutes early, and I was um, sleeping under the pulpit, as I do every Thursday afternoon. I try to take a 15-minute nap, and I heard a bang. You know, somebody pulled on the door, and I thought, oh, gosh. So I got up, and I look out, and there's a guy, and he, by the time I got out there, he was at his truck, and um, he was taking a picture of the church. And I went over, and I said, what's up? And so I didn't know there was a church there. I thought that was pretty cool. And we talked a few minutes, and I said, well, where do you attend? And he said, "I over at uh, the church on Proctor, which is um, uh, Abundant. Abundant Life, thank you. And I said, well, that's where my neighbor goes. And uh, I, I knew that he didn't attend regularly, though, because it took him a second to say, um, it's uh, Abundant Life. So he's been there, and that's, <laughs> he, he's a Reformed Catholic, and he went there, and he started really hammering on the Catholic Church, really hammering on it. He says, there are a bunch of perverts there, and he says, you can't tell me that anybody that he starts going through the whole thing about why there's perversion in the Catholic Church mm-hmm. and I had to get away from that blah 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 and um, anyway so I grew up in a church kind of like that as well out on CSTK I said it's the Episcopal Church and now they're ho- ordaining homosexuals just oh they're okay he says yeah and so the problem is when you get people that are teaching liberal doctrine all of a sudden the liberal ideas start getting into the church and I didn't argue with him. I almost said, well, the word of God says, but then he started talking. And so it, it just ended my opportunity to get into that. But um, uh, he has no problem with homosexual pastors and bishops and all of that. And uh, so it shows that, yeah, well, that's what I'm saying. He was more worried about the, the, the perversion, the child perversion. The perversion is, I mean, the Catholic Church has to do with it. I understand oh, that. But he, he, all he saw was the child. And what it's tells me, what that tells me is it probably affected him probably personally. Affected him, yeah. But um, you can't say, well, this is okay and this is okay. There has to be a reason why you say those things. And that all comes back to scripture. Just like I'm saying about the fatherhood of man. When you teach any little thing, it's called, Paul uses a term. He says, uh, bad doctrine is like yeast. yeast. It's just like leaven. And once you introduce the smallest little bit of it, all of a sudden it infects the entire loaf. And that's I've given the example before of San Francisco sourdough bread. They put in yeast back in the 1800s into one loaf of bread, and they have never added in new yeast in all those 120, 130 mm-hmm. years. Never once. They just take a piece of the loaf save it for the next day, and they put it into the new batch of mm-hmm. dough. That same yeast that was from over 100 and some years ago is still making the San Francisco sourdough bread mm-hmm. 100 and some years later. And so that is a picture of what's going on in the church. Any little bit of bad doctrine is leaven, and any leaven is going to cause the church to start to swell. And to, it doesn't matter what, what the sin is. It can be improper teaching on tithing it can be improper teaching on homosexuality it can be improper teaching on any single issue but it will infect the church and now it will get all over the entire congregation and it's just it's a bad thing so um let's see here we've got people walking all over the place so um let's see your mother yeah no, no, that's all right um so anyway we'll go ahead and uh, go on from there um uh liberal christian theologians it is simply not a biblical tenet. Speaking of the fatherhood of Christi, the fatherhood of humanity. All right. Even the concept of the brotherhood of man is far too often used to convey meaning, which is biblically not supportable. Okay. Without Christ, there is not the truly spiritual family relationship which the Bible reveals to us. Paul 
again and again and again. He does it in all of his letters, addresses the people as brethren. brethren. That's right, brothers or brethren, depending on what version you're using. He uses it again and again, and he's doing that for a specific reason. You are brothers in Christ. We have a family relationship, and that's why I'm addressing you, and I have the right to address you sternly in this case, friendly in this case. I can counsel you in this case. I can tell you you've done wrong here and you're doing well here. It's because, um, uh, uh, what am I trying to say here? He, um, uh, he's using that term to show us that we have a brotherhood within the church, okay? We don't want to take that outside of the church when we're talking about spiritual matters. We can say, oh, we're all brothers in humanity. That's fine, right? But we do not want to take that in spiritual matters and call people brother and then try to imply that they are somehow on the same spiritual level with us. They are not. Unless you are in Christ, God is not your father, and those people are not your brothers and sisters. Okay? It's just one of those things we need to be careful with. What's that? Yeah, unless he's actually your brother. That's right. So you can have a brother that is a brother, and you can have a brother that's not a brother. Correct. <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, um, and I'm still waking up, so uh, if I'm slurring my thoughts completely, it's because I'm actually still asleep while we're sitting here. Anyway, however, in Christ, we are sealed with the Spirit and established together with other believers in a unique way. And unfortunately, though that's true and that there are many redeemed in Christ that are Actually, brothers, we don't treat each other that way. The simplest thing to do in the world is to divide the body over the most minor of things. Okay? Uh, like I say, um, I, I am completely opposed to King James onlyism. To me, that's not a uh, precept that should cause me to not fellowship with other people. I attended a King James only church for three years down the road, maybe even longer than that. No big deal. They were my brothers and sisters in Christ. But they, on the other hand, will often attack you and they'll defriend you from Facebook because of something as stupid as that. I believe in your once saved, always saved, because that's what the Bible teaches. But I don't hate other people that teach differently. They say you can lose your salvation. They're just wrong. Mm-hmm. All right. But some people, I, good example, somebody emailed me, somebody that I feel very close to personally emailed me yesterday and said exactly that. Somebody defriended him because he believes in eternal salvation. Can you imagine that? Somebody on Facebook defriended that person, cut off any line of communication because he simply said, we're sealed with the Spirit, and God doesn't make mistakes. And they defriended him. You're going you're gonna to break Christian fellowship over something so stupid. Now, that person, the other person that did the defriending, is completely wrong. They're absolutely wrong, so they're double wrong in this case. But, you know, if somebody wants to believe that you can lose your salvation, I'm not going to defriend them over it. What a weak, small thing to do. And now this person is going to have to suffer with that. If they're like me, anytime I get defriended, it just bothers me. I think, you know, I I just don't understand why people can't get along over something so whatever. Anyway, they want to be right. They People want to be right, and they want to just hold it. I, I very very rarely will defriend anybody. They've really got to do something really major. And, you know, but if somebody defriends me, and I've said this before, I block them. They got their one chance with me and I'm done with it. I'm not going back down that road. So um, that's just one of those things. I don't want to see them again. I don't want them coming back to me because I know they're they're tight. If they're willing to defriend somebody over something minor like that, then they're going to do it again when they get upset next time. I don't need that in my life. I don't need that kind of grief. Mm -hmm. So if you defriend, you get blocked, and then you'll never see me again. There's no way to contact me except for by email. And if they say, can we be friends on Facebook again? 
no, that's not true because one person did befriend me and we reconciled. And I was very happy about that. And I said, if you want to friend me again, I unblocked her. But other than that, I, I usually don't have time for that because there's no point in, in having people come at you over things like that. I just don't see it. I, I do not see it. Um, anyway, that's a completely separate issue. But um, let's see here. Um, uh, we're brothers in Christ. That's right. And uh, there's this new bond which unites us. And uh, although it may not be evident, as I was just explaining, as Christians often rile against each other and tear each other down, it exists on a spiritual level nonetheless. This is manifest based on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. Let me read you that. And uh, 2 Corinthians, oh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22. He says, Oh, let me read 21. Now, he who establishes us with you in Christ has anointed us in God, or who has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Okay, so um, done, we're sealed, we are in Christ. Okay, now having said that, I do from time to time have people say to me, well, you shouldn't tear other people down that uh, uh, during Bible studies or during sermons, they'll say, well, you, you are, will tear somebody down because of their doctrine. Completely different, in my opinion. If somebody is teaching false doctrine, they need to be called out on it. Okay? When John Calvin teaches false doctrine, it is my job as a teacher to correct that false doctrine. If somebody teaches that we are under the law of Moses in any part, no matter how small it is, tithing, they are teaching something wrong. As a matter of fact, if you teach that the law is binding, it is a heresy. It's my job to call that type of thing out. I call out R.C. Sproul all the time, and yet I think he is one of the finest teachers around. I don't tear him down personally, but I tear down where he is wrong, because you have to hold the line on this. All right, I can fellowship with people that are wrong. I could go to R.C. Sproul's church on Sunday and enjoy it very much. Whenever I get done with the uh, month's CD, the first thing I do is say to Jim, do you want to listen to yes. it now? You know, he's one behind, so I still have one in my, at my truck to give him when he gives me the old one back. But I listen to the guy. And where he is wrong, I will call him out on it because that is what we are supposed to do. We are supposed to hold the line on doctrine. If somebody is not big enough to handle that, like if I teach something and somebody says that I'm wrong and they want to come at me about it, then I can defend why I said what I said, okay? And if I don't defend it properly, then I'm the one that's wrong. And like I said, nobody has perfect doctrine. I don't know where I'm wrong because if I did, I wouldn't be teaching it, right? right. But obviously, I am going to be wrong on certain precepts. The job for the people that learn, whether it's online or whether it's sitting here or whether it's 10 years from now, is to say, I just learned something from Charlie in a Bible study, and now I'm gonna to check to make sure that what he said is correct. You go online, you check other opinions, and you have to process and evaluate those things. When I type a sermon, I explained this before, I will read probably 20 people's commentaries, and some of them on a single verse will be this long. And I read every single word of every one of the same commentators every single week. And like I say, some of them speak in almost very, very difficult words to understand. Just the way they speak is like listening to a, a nuclear physicist. Uh -huh. It's very hard to understand, and sometimes I'll read something four or five times just to, I think I understand what he's saying. But there are times where I will read these people that I can't wait to meet, 
I've got John Gill and I've got Charles Ellicott and Albert Barnes and Kyle and DeLeach and uh, a whole host of names of people that I read, every single word of theirs. He will say this and he will say this and they are exactly the opposite. It's not that they're reading this verse and saying, well, this could be in this. Literally opposite views on something. The Hebrew here says that it is blue. The Hebrew here says that it is pink. It's that it is completely opposite in meaning. Can't be true. Only one of those can be true, or they can both be wrong, but they cannot both be true. Okay? So, uh, well, that's what you do. You study and you show yourself approved. You say, and sometimes I will read this comment, and I'll read this comment, and I'll read another 10 comments, and I won't agree with any of them. Really? Not any of them. And so I'll say that. I'll say no other commentators will say this. And so now it's time for you to take what I've said and say, well, maybe I'm wrong. You saw that in the end of the book of Jonah. Mm-hmm. The entire last chapter of the book of Jonah is pretty much mistranslated, in my opinion. All right? I could be wrong on that. I could be completely wrong. And I even said that at the beginning of that sermon. I, I was very clear that you're not going to hear this anywhere else. I don't know another scholar that's come to this conclusion. And I wouldn't do this unless I thought it was correct. I wouldn't intentionally misuse the word of God. But if, if it wasn't for a couple of verses that were translated differently by Robert Young than anybody else, I probably wouldn't have even gone down that path. But once I realized because of his, and he still had other things he didn't translate as I later realized it should be, okay? But this is what you have to do. That's why I say when you go home, you check on what I, I, I said. It doesn't mean go and read your Bible specifically because if you're reading your Bible, you're reading exactly what I just said, and now you're taking what I've said and you're inserting in those verses. You're to go and check other commentaries. You're to go and maybe compare it with something else in the Bible. Other commentaries don't scare me at all. I love reading lots of commentaries. Okay, I'm not really keen on the ones at the bottom of the Bible, though. Bible commentaries, the little ones that you get in your Bible, are usually one paragraph, and they're they're weak. They're just something to, yeah, right. They, they just, they're there to kind of give you an idea of what's going on and maybe make you feel good, and that's about it. They're not deep. But if you want to know what the substance of a particular verse is, same thing with these, okay? These were all, each one of these was a day, each verse. I typed one commentary for a verse from the Book of Romans, and you know, I posted every single day, Okay. Well, when I do this, I don't just do this off the top of my head. The first thing I do after reading my Bible every morning is I study all of those same commentators, all of them. And sometimes I will read on one verse this many commentaries, 10 of them this long, before I start typing. Sometimes I don't look at them at all because I know what this particular verse is saying, and I'll just give an analysis of it. But normally I read everything that these people have to say. And then even though I already know in my mind, I think I know what I want to say, I will get valuable insights from them. And almost always something wonderful comes out. He'll sit here and talk about a verse that I've analyzed about something that a guy named Wearsby said. Well, I don't read Wearsby. And I'll think, you know what? I never thought of that. I never thought of that because you've got all these people that are giving information. And then someday when I'm dead, somebody else might read my commentary and along with 10 other people and say, now I have a better idea, right? The, the idea is that we mature in our theology. And that we don't just say, I'm going to hold the Schofield reference notes and that's it. Bad idea. Bad idea. Because Schofield was one guy and he had all kinds of wrong analysis probably. I don't read Schofield, so I don't know. But the point is, study to show yourself approved. Okay, we'll go on. 17? No, no, no. This same spirit, the Holy Spirit, who adopts us 
establishes us, anoints us, and seals us, among many, many other things. He also bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. This cannot be human-derived knowledge, because if that were true, then what to say of the many who claim to be God's children apart from Christ, right? It can't be human-derived knowledge. No, instead it is a knowledge imparted to us by God through the Holy Spirit, which assures us. But I wouldn't take that too far. And the reason why is because people that are in supposed Christian denominations claim that they have the Spirit of God, don't they? We know that from Jehovah's Witnesses. We know that from the Mormons. You know, you can read people that went out with Joseph Smith and uh, what's his name, Brigham Young, and they went out heading east. Okay, Joseph Smith actually died, I think, in Missouri or something. But anyway, these people are out heading east, and on the way, they were baptizing people into Mormonism. And you read their commentaries about... You mean west, don't you? West, yeah. They're from east to the west. Thank you. Thank you. I said east, but yeah, they were heading west. That's okay. I'm glad you said that, though. They were heading west. Um, but um, uh, you can read their letters. You know, they, they, they would write a letter about their experience of being baptized. And you would think, wow... They would say it was the most moving experience of my life, and I could feel the Spirit of God on me, and blah, 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 blah. I'm sorry. Spirit of God is not among Mormons. I don't care what anybody says. It is a false religion. It teaches completely false doctrine. It is It is from the beginning to the end, it is a false um, uh, cult, we'll cult. say. It it, it, cult, that, yeah. that is all there is to it. The Spirit of God is not among them. I read a similar letter of somebody that was initiated into the Masons. He said exactly the same thing that that, that uh, Mormon said. He said it was the most moving spiritual uh, uh, thing that ever happened in my life was being brought into this initiation. And he says, I, I, I'm a completely changed. It was like listening to somebody. whole point is that people all over the world, it doesn't matter if you're a Buddhist, it doesn't matter if you're a Muslim, it doesn't People take what happens to them in their lives and they transfer that emotional experience that they went through into a spiritual experience. And we can't do that. You have to be very careful with that. And I've said this a million times and I will say it again. Emotions are the shallowest part of the human being. They're the shallowest. If you base your theology on emotions, you have departed completely from Scripture. Completely. We are to be emotional because of what Christ did. All right? We are not... Uh, to be emotional. In in other words, our theology is not based on the emotions. Our emotions are based on the theology. They come, they're derived from it. We should be emotional because we read in the Bible that Christ died for us. We should be emotional that, uh, uh, you know, somebody is brought into the, the church and they're baptized and they're on fire for the Lord. Those things should make us rejoice, but we do not base our theology on the emotions. Yes, that's correct. That's, I want to make yes. sure I said that correctly. We don't want to make that fundamental error. Way too many people do that. And like I said, you can read it in writings of people baptized in Islam, uh, uh, Mormonism. You can read it, people that were initiated into the Masons and a host of other things. You just read all around the world. People are seeking God based on an emotional experience. Bad idea. They have nothing to do with religion. Okay, somebody said, I got my oil changed out of Jiffy Lube, and I had this experience. Oh, it was, right. It's, a, it's like 
totally unrelated. But yes, totally unrelated. Has nothing to do with the proper relationship with Christ. Yeah. Well, exactly. So the Masons was just like you said. It was a jiffy loop. It was just something completely unrelated. Yeah. So, and if somebody has a great experience in whatever it is, whether it's an initiation at a college, good deal. It is not a religious experience. And right. we have right. to make sure that right. what we look at, even in a church that is Christ-centered, is that we don't base our theology on the emotions. We base our emotions on the theology. Okay, it's, get it in the right order. Of that is, is that when you get like, well, God is all love. Right. It's like, well, yes, he is. God is love. But, but there's a problem. Here's, here is something, what he is saying, and this will help you unpackage what he just said, is in the book of 1 John, it says, the God is love. There's an article in front of God. It does not say God is the love. That was very, very specific why he did that. Yeah. It was because there is one God and he is love. You cannot turn it around and say love is God. Okay. I saw Benny Hinn do that on TV one time. He said God is love and therefore love is God. Well, once you do that, you have limited God to the state of love. He can no longer be yeah. wrathful. He can no longer be righteous. He can no longer be just and holy and all of these other things. There is a reason why that article is in front of God in the book of 1 John. And unfortunately, translators don't put it in there. They leave out the article more often than not in, in translating. And as I said, I was talking to the people that were visiting from Texas on, um, on uh, what day did it was a day or two ago. Was it yesterday? No, it was two days ago. Anyway, we were having breakfast before they left. And um, uh, I said that we were just talking about different things and why translations are important. And I said, we have the word Elohim in the Bible. And it's probably in there 3,000, 3,500 times. God, Elohim, God, okay? And there's a very, very limited number of times that there is an article in front of the name God. It says, Ha Elohim, the God. And they don't translate that in the English translations ever. And yet that is as important. Why did they put it there? And every time they do, I highlight that. And it always is for a very specific reason why it says the God. Normally, it's to contrast him from all other gods. But there are even times where it's beyond that. But that's why getting captivated by a single translation of the Bible is bad business, is because there is no perfect translation of the Bible. I'm sorry, if you're a King James Onlyist, you have made a fundamental a mistake in what you are looking at. You know, I see this with many, many different Bible translations. I've seen people say that you should only read the translation of the Greek Septuagint because that is God's perfect and inspired word. Jesus and the apostles quoted it. Well, yes, they did, but they also quoted the Hebrew scriptures, okay? Um, and there are errors in the Septuagint. I've seen people, they have a new Hebrew Bible out. It's called the, uh, anyway, it's, you know, it uses the term Elohim instead of Lord. And they say, this is the best Bible. Well, they don't even give the information on where the source documents that they did the translation from. Okay. And there are errors in that translation. It is always wrong to get stuck on a single translation of the Bible. Always. Because we won't have the perfect Word of God that came from the, the pens of the people until we stand in the presence of the Lord. He has allowed us to translate his word, and there is always going to be problems with that. This is a big, big, complicated book. For the greatest scholar in the world, they are going to miss it something. Is, but the message is simple. The message and, is very simple. And that's where, like, Wycliffe and things like that, that, that translate the Bible into all these other languages. Absolutely like wonderful. Like, oh, my gosh. How does... How do you hold true to what came off the 
the quill. That's right. Of Paul. Impossible. Because languages are complicated, Mm -hmm. and one word can be translated with 10 different words, and they all mean the same thing, as we see week after week. Or one word can be mistranslated a hundred different ways as well. So you have to be careful with Bible translations. And the more you read, the more that you study different translations of the Bible, the better off you're going to be, not the worse. Which is what the New King James Version preface said. No, the King James Version preface said specifically, a multitude of translations is profitable. Okay, it's profitable. It's we should never. Add, they even say the opposite. They said, "Do not get captivated by a single translation." Anyway, um, okay. So we okay. have. Uh, no, I'm still going on. Um, we can definitely say that we were born. Okay, mm-hmm. let me go back and read so you know my reference. No, instead, it is a knowledge imparted to us by God through the Holy Spirit, which assures us. And then I got off onto that talk about. Um, not basing your theology on emotions. Okay, but we can definitely say that we were born. Everybody here knows that we were born. We exist. We know that we were born, okay? Knowing that we are human and that humans are born of mothers who came from other humans, we can know with absolute certainty that we were born. It is a self-evident fact. So sure also should be the knowledge of our new birth in Christ. This doesn't mean that the knowledge remains, Not many people think on the fact that they are humans, and unfortunately, many quite often act more like animals than they do as humans. Mm -hmm. Despite this, they are humans nonetheless. Mm -hmm. Likewise, there are Christians who act in a manner far less worthy than the glorious name that they bear. Equally sad is that some have even forgotten that they bear the name. Okay, this does not mean that they have lost their salvation. Okay, let me read you the verse where that is recorded because I, this is one of the set of verses that I like to go through from time to time so that people understand. I'm not going to read the verse at first, I'm going to show you what you are supposed to do when you come to Christ, and then we're going to get to the final verse, and you're going to see that people have actually forgotten that they were saved. Here we go. This is from the second epistle of Peter to Peter, it's verse um, chapter one, and we're going to start in verse two. It says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He's saying, multiply this, okay? Grace and peace um, multiplied to you in the knowledge of God. So you want to multiply in the knowledge, all right? Verse three, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is without, that is an absolute statement. He has given us everything that we need Okay, all things that pertain to life and godliness. That is no exception in that. Okay, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. It's an absolute statement. Read it again. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. Verse four, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature. We're to become like Christ. We're to partake in the divine nature. Someday we will. We won't be gods, but we will partake in the divine nature. Okay? Um, going on. Where was that? Uh, the divi- uh, No, no, wait a minute. Divine nature. Yes, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Mm-hmm. Okay? So he's giving us a background of what we will be like, that he's given us everything necessary for that, etc., Verse 5, 
but also for this very reason, based on what I just said, let me read you it again. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which you have been given to, which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped your corruption that is in the world through lust, verse 5, but also for this reason, based on those things, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge. So you have faith. I have come to Christ and I say, uh, what does it say, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you believe, okay? Yeah, I have faith. You receive uh, the Lord, you will be saved, okay? So I have faith. Add to that faith virtue. Be virtuous. Be a person of virtue, okay? And then, uh, hang on a sec, to virtue, knowledge. This is where it breaks down with people. People become Christians, and they say, I have faith in Jesus, and that's great, and for a while they act pious, and they have a little bit of virtue, and then it breaks down, because knowledge is hard work, right? It takes study to gain knowledge of God. It takes real contemplation. It takes reading. It takes listening to sermons. It takes going to Bible studies. It's something that people do not want to do. They don't want that. Hence, we have a church full of people on Sunday morning, and we've got five of us, and four of us aren't from this church, right? Or actually, we've got seven of us, and three of us aren't from this church. But anyway, you see what I'm saying? It is something that people don't like to do. They don't want to study. They don't want to know the depths of knowledge of God. But we'll go on. Okay. Um, where was that? Verse 6. To knowledge, you add self-control. So now I have the knowledge, and I need to control myself with that knowledge. I need to start perfecting myself in this walk in Christ, okay? To self-control, perseverance. Not only will I have self-control, but I'm going to continue on in that. I'm going to persevere in being a man of God or a woman of God. I am not going to deviate from that precept. So you've got your faith. You've got from your faith virtue. From your virtue, you add in knowledge. And to knowledge, you have self-control. I'm going to apply this knowledge to my life, and then I'm going to preserve in that application. Okay? And then from perseverance to godliness. So I'm persevering in it, and I'm becoming more and more like Christ. I've got the knowledge. I've got the virtue. I've got all of these things, and I am becoming like Christ. I'm persevering unto godliness. And then from godliness to brotherly kindness, because that is what we are called to. We are called into a church where we apply brotherly kindness. That's why Paul keeps saying brethren, 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 is because we are to act as brethren within the church. Okay, so brotherly kindness, and from brotherly kindness, love. So we're building up all of these, these things. We're, we're expanding on what we began with, which was faith, and we're actually going, because if you stop at knowledge, what is the problem? You become a professor in a college and you don't have love for anybody in Christ. You don't have any heart for God. You're just simply an academician who is taking this, this once faith that he had and he's doing everything in a, a knowledge. And that happens. You know, like when I'm typing sermons, it becomes a knowledge thing with me. I want to know everything in this passage and I have to sometimes stop and actually think about it. And I tell you what, when I'm typing sermons, I can actually start breaking down in tears because I have now taken that head knowledge, which has just worn me out. And I think about it, and all of a sudden, I'll be sitting there bawling in front of my computer. But if I don't do that, if I don't think about the aspect of the emotional aspect which I'm deriving from that, it becomes just an academic thing. I'm going to preach a really great sermon on Sunday. I'm going to wow everybody with all the insights. There's more to it than that. 
And that's the same thing with your walk with Christ. There has to be more than just persevering in it. I'm going to be the best missionary I can be. I'm going to be a loving missionary. I'm going to be the best teacher I can be. I'm going to be a loving teacher. I'm going to be forgiving of people when they show up late for class. <laughs> okay, so there you go. We've got this knowledge to self-control, to self-control perseverance, perseverance to godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. Verse 8, for if these things are yours, all of these things, and he went from point to point to point, if these are yours, okay, and abound, they're yours and they also abound. You're actually living out this life that he is telling you, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're not only going to not be barren, you're also not going to be unfruitful. You're going to be fruitful because it is a part of you that is you, you have applied each step all the way. And you come to verse 9, and it's the most incredible words in the world. He says, for he who lacks these things, he failed to go from faith into the, the next and the next and the next. He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. He actually forgot that Christ saved him. He's a person who is completely departed from the faith. And he's not unsaved. It doesn't say that he has lost his salvation. It simply says that he was cleansed from his past sins. Eternal salvation right in that verse right there. He was cleansed. He's just forgotten it. A person can walk completely away from the Lord, and they are still saved. The Lord does not walk away from them, but they will suffer in this life because of their lack of of uh, and you know you talk to people that have been in Christ a long time and you say well, I was saved when I was seven and I didn't do anything with it until I was 25 years old I've talked to a hundred people like that oh I was in the church and I was saved and I knew I was saved but I just walked away from him and eventually I just and then I went to church one time and I I, I, I got on fire for the Lord I've heard that a hundred times they are exactly who Peter warns against don't fall into this trap because if you don't apply these in this order, you're going to forget that you were cleansed from your past sins. Now, it's really sweet when you come back to the Lord. The emotions that you have are wonderful, right? But every single one of them that has said that to me has also said, boy, did I waste those years. I have yet to hear anybody say, I'm really happy that I walked away from the Lord and I, I just threw away those 20 years. They all say the same thing. I can't believe I wasted those years. And now all I want to do is I want to study this word. I want to know the Lord. They're applying it to their life. They're doing all the things that they wish that they had been doing. That is, it's a sad tragedy, but that's the way it is. Okay, so we want to keep applying these things to our lives day in and day out because we have been cleansed from our past sins and we don't want to forget that. Okay, so that's 2 Peter 1, 9 with a couple other verses added in. And then it says, um, uh, and uh, let me read what I said about it. In 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 8 are given valuable instruction to keep us from being barren or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So take a moment to read those verses, which we just did, and then apply them to your life. All right. And uh, let's see. I have a little prayer here. My precious Lord, I am a jar of clay with many cracks and flaws. But the contents you have filled me with far surpass the humbled body that I am in. Help me to become a vessel which is honorable, glorifying to you, and worthy of the glorious Holy Spirit, which testifies to my position in Christ. Bind up my cracks, fill in my flaws, and purify me with the washing of water by the word. Amen. Okay. 817. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God's. Of heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, 
if indeed we share in his suffering, in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay, kind of close. I'm going to read anyway. If we And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs, he says, with Christ. Okay, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Very close, just reworded a little bit. Yep. But uh, here we, we're, we are joint heirs with Christ. Now think about that. Christ did all of the work. He did everything necessary for our salvation. And not only did he do that, he died for us. Everything was done by him, every single thing, and yet we are given joint heir status with him. What a deal. What an absolute deal. In Hebrews 1, uh, verse 2, it says, Christ Jesus um, is said to be the heir of all things. Okay? Very explicit. He is the heir of all things. In Matthew 28, 18, Jesus himself states that all authority in heaven and earth has been granted to him. He is the recipient of it all. The Lamb has triumphed, and God the Father is pleased to bestow upon him such glory. He is the Son of God, and thus entitled to it all. Here Paul imparts uh, to us a truth which is astounding in its weight and meaning for us. We can't fully know it in our fallen bodies. Not possible, okay? We look to Jesus and understand his authority, his right to rule, his power, his glory, but understanding isn't the same thing as comprehending. Mm -hmm. Our minds are not capable of grasping his greatness. And as awesome and as glorious is his rule and his place of authority, we are told that we will participate in it. It has been noted that we are sons of God. We are his children because of Christ. If children, then heirs. Under Roman law, all children, including those who were adopted into a family, became equal inheritors of an estate. Under Jewish law, it was different. The oldest son was given a double portion over the other sons. Paul is speaking of the Roman, not the Jewish law here. He's writing to the Romans, and he's explaining what our position in Christ is like. Jesus shows us that this is true in Romans 3, verse 21. Let me read that to you. It says right there, to him who overcomes, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He has granted us the right to sit on his throne. That means a position of authority and power with him, okay? He doesn't say that I'm going to give you your own throne to sit on. He says, I have given you the right to sit in my throne, just as, okay, so it is, that is a joint heir status. Just so you know, somebody emailed me a wonderful question this morning. Um, cowards will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. Revelation uh, 20, 21 and 22. Right. Okay. And um, uh, the King James Version says fearful. And the question was, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about this because I have anxieties and fears and blah, blah, blah. Right. And I said, don't worry. That does not pertain to you at all. It doesn't pertain to you. Okay, we all have anxieties, we all have fears. Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but it's easier said than done, isn't it? Right? Okay, so the reason why is because it says explicitly, and this, that is exactly, not that verse, but the exact precept that I gave her. I said, um, let me read you the verse that uh, says that about cowards. It says that in Revelation 21, let me find it. It'll take just a second. I want people to understand. Um, okay, verse 7. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his um, God, and he will be my son, right? Verse 7. 
but the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexual immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Has everybody here told a lie within the last year? Anybody? Okay. I, I see lots of faces with grimps on them. Okay. So, all right. All liars shall have their part in the lake, which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So we all focus on one of those. Oh, it says idolaters, and I, I definitely didn't put God first yesterday, or I, I'm a coward. I don't want to go to war. Okay, whatever it is. And so the question that was proposed to me is, how does this affect me? And I said, don't worry, that doesn't matter at all. I want you to know that we all have shortcomings and we all have failings, but I want to take you to 1 John chapter 5, where it says, um, let me find, it'll take just a second to find it. Verse 5, 5 verse 5. Who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? If you believe that, you are an overcomer. So verse 7 applies to you, and it doesn't matter what happens in verse 8, you are an overcomer. In other words, God has forgiven you. It is past tense, it is done. The people that he's talking about are the people that are, one, not in Christ, and two, have this as their trademark signature, right? I'm a cowardly person. <laughs> You could say that a person that doesn't come to Christ in in the tribulation period, right? You're in the tribulation period and you say, I have two choices. I can either take the mark of the beast or I can lose my head, right? right? That's a coward. I know that Christ is the son of God. I know that I can keep my head if I proclaim him. Off comes the head, but I'm not going to do it. That's what he's speaking about. It's not somebody that is saved. It's about somebody that is not saved, and that those are descriptors <laughs> of them, because we've all violated half of those within the past year, okay? Some of us probably in the past 20 minutes. I did not put God first. You know, I had something else on my mind. We're an idolater. So don't worry about that. That's just something that I was... I, I'm glad to get these emails, because it allows me to tell to know what is on people's minds, because if it's on one person's mind, it's probably on other people's minds, and then we can talk about that. People should not walk around with fear, in Christ. They should have awesome fear of God, right? We should right. fear God because he is God. We should fear God because he has redeemed us, but we shouldn't be afraid of God in the sense that maybe he's going to take away my salvation and cast me in hell. It is not going to happen. You are saved, you are saved, and you are saved, okay? So going on, um, uh, let's see here, where were we? The lamb, oh, uh, he used to, has all authority, in heaven and in earth has been granted to him. He is the recipient of it all. The Lamb has triumphed, and God the Father is pleased to bestow upon him such glory. He is the Son of God and thus entitled to it all. Here Paul imparts to us a truth which is astounding in its weight and meaning for us. Oh, I've already said that. I went back a, a couple paragraphs. Okay, so Revelation 3.21 Sitting on Jesus' throne implies full inheritance, nothing less. That's why I took you to that verse. Revelation 3.21, he can sit on my throne with me. We have full inheritance. All of the rights and the privileges of true sonship are realized because of mere faith in Christ. Adoption guarantees all of this. We are heirs of God, as Paul says, and joint heirs with Christ. However, a point that is almost universally, it's almost universally overlooked in today's world of ease and comfort, is the truth that calling on Christ does not necessarily mean a bank account full of cash and a house with elevators, okay? Because we see that. Christians that do have faith that we're saved by Jesus are in churches that teach that kind of nonsense. They say, well, I'm an heir with God in Christ. I know people that have used verses just like that to say that I'm entitled to all things. 
We're not entitled to anything. We're not entitled to anything in this life except to die. I can't think of anything else that we absolutely have to do. They say the only thing that's certain is death and taxes. I'm sorry, people don't pay taxes all the time. Death is coming unless the rapture happens first, and that's the only thing that we're guaranteed to. We are not guaranteed to a, a bank account full of money in abundance. And it, Just ask Paul Stoll right now, who's one of the most faithful Christians that I've ever known in my entire life, what he thinks about abundant life at this point. He's suffering, right? And he didn't do anything to deserve that. It's a part of the human condition. Some of us live to be 90 and 100 years old and never have a bad day in our life. Great. Most of us get to three years old and we start stubbing our toe and it gets worse from there, right? Okay? There's no guarantee in this life. Absolutely none. We should just be thankful that, you know, as people say, you wake up and you're on the right side of the daisies, it's probably a pretty good day. But it doesn't mean that you're going to be abundantly blessed and get a house and all of that kind of stuff, okay? But we have to be careful there. We have been given the same right to rule in heaven and the same right to suffer on earth. Christ suffered, we're going to. And he mentions that right in this verse. We can thank the Lord each day that we get up to a beautiful sunrise, a table full of food, and a job which pays for family vacations. But we can also thank him when we suffer for his name, right? All right, got a verse for you from 1 Peter chapter 4 to show us. 1 Peter chapter 4, that's 2 Peter and let's see here. 1 Peter 4. But let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory, glorify God in this matter. Right? So he's not saying you're not going to suffer. He says if you do suffer, because some of us do, do it in a manner which will glorify God. Okay? So, um... Uh, we're shown that honorable Christian suffering involves glorifying God, okay? And we're prone to suffer. We might as well do it to the glory of God. The back to the California fire. Yep. It's like they're suffering. Oh, no doubt yeah. About that. And God will be glorified through their actions of being a, Hopefully. If yeah, they're, yeah. Right. If they're doing everything that was just listed before. Absolutely. Job, it's like, you know, it's... It all, it all ties together. It all ties together. It, it is our job to just keep doing our best to glorify God. Mm -hmm. I, I can't stress, though, the importance of doctrine in the process. Because if you don't have proper doctrine and you end up in a wildfire out in California or if whatever else happens in your life, it, it, the emails that distress me the most are when people say, why is God picking on me? Mm -hmm. I, and I get a lot of them. They distress me because... I'm not going to say that he's, you know, it, 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 you have a right to be miserable. I understand that. Um, R.C. Sproul said one time in one of his uh, Bible studies, he said um, a lady uh, uh, had cancer and she was going through chemotherapy. And she walked into church and she said, he said to her, how are you doing there? Mabel, whatever her name was. Mabel, how are you doing? And she said, R.C., it's really hard to praise God when your face is in the toilet. She's throwing up and she's absolutely miserable, okay? And I understand that. And I understand that people have to question, why is this happening to me? But it is a really distressing email for me to get because your, your life is your life. It's what God has ordained you for. And if you just, no matter how bad it gets, you have to keep saying, and look at Paul. He's in the ICU and he was 
witnessing to people, mm -hmm. right? I had a friend, she uh, broke uh, her legs and stuff. We prayed for her a couple months ago, and she uh, was in the uh, old folks' home, or not, you know, the after hospital rehab. care or whatever. Rehab. Yeah, yeah. And rehab. rehab, thank you. And, you know, she's telling people about Jesus. It, 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 it Sometimes it's not easy to do that, yes. but that is what will get our eyes off of ourselves. Yes. You know, because we're in this situation. Yeah. We're stuck in it. If you are going to go through bad times, you're stuck in it. Okay. You might as well take the positive route. Okay. And it's hard to answer those Job. emails. Job. What? Job. 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 Yeah. Look at Job. I mean, the guy suffered more than anybody. Yep. It, he really didn't do anything wrong. Yep. It was just Satan wanted to test this guy's faith. And the Lord says, okay, have at it. Right. The Lord is sovereign. He is allowed to do that. So. He loves. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, Job's wasn't chastening, though. No, Job wasn't. Job wasn't, but that's true. He does chasten those whom he loves, and if you're uh, not... Refining. Yeah, he's being refined. That's right. So it's just one of those things that uh, uh, if you are suffering, if you are struggling, the best thing for you to do is not to complain about it, but to praise the Lord through it. And I'm not saying that complaining isn't part of life, but... The more that you redirect your attitude towards the Lord, the less you're going to be concerned about yourself mm -hmm. during that trial. Okay, so that it, it, there's no easy answer to that. I'm not trying to say there is. I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't email me with that because when they do, I can give them comfort. I can say something nice to them. I can give them a psalm. We can. I'm, I'm saying that it is a difficult thing to answer mm -hmm. sure. because they are the ones that are suffering and I'm not. So anything I say is from an outside perspective. I have no reference mm -hmm. of empathy for them at this time. Mm -hmm. Right. Now, I've used him as an example before. We have one person that uh, goes to the projects with us out of our group of four or five people that are there every week. And he has been able to empathize with people because of his own physical afflictions or because of a family physical affliction or of something that has happened in his past that one of their sons is going through. Every single thing that happens there, he's, he's participated in it. It is the greatest thing in the world because they can no longer say, well, see, I'm miserable and you can't empathize with me. That's true. And because of his ability to be there with these people, they now have a new appreciation on what it means to be in the situation they're in. Whereas I couldn't do that. I, 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 I cannot empathize in the same way. I can feel bad for him. I can give him comfort. But in the end, they can say, well, you really don't know what I'm going through. This person does. Burke, are you okay today? You're not, are you? I know. I can tell. If you need to go, go. You've, been, you've really been, uh, I, I can tell. I, he was out selling pumpkins in the heat before he got here, and I think that's got him down. He's, yeah. Anyway, okay, so we'll go on from there. Let's see here. Um, uh I've read that. Okay, the truth we shouldn't miss, and I've said this, is that suffering in and, its, in and of itself doesn't meet the necessary conditions for the glory of heaven's riches. Okay? Only suffering with Christ does. And that's one thing that people will take to extremes as well. I have no idea if Mother Teresa was saved. It's not my thing. I have no idea. Okay? But she's out there living in India. Right? She's living in these squalid conditions, and people are ascribing that to being, uh, you know, a, a faithful servant of the Lord. Well, if she wasn't in Christ, then all of that was wasted effort. It's the same thing with suffering. Let me read it again. The truth we should not miss is that suffering in and of itself doesn't meet the necessary conditions for the glory of heaven's riches. We see people that are suffering and we say, well, you know, at least they're, you know, they'll receive their reward in the end. No reward if they're not in Christ. Right. 
the suffering has yeah. to be done for the glory of God. Okay, so uh, when we suffer with him in this manner, as Peter said, we find that we will also be glorified together with him, as Paul says. There's nothing shameful in suffering for Christ, and in fact, it is the most honorable of all aspects of our Christian walk. To suffer for him is to have emulated him in his highest moment leading to glory, which was the cross. And so people that do suffer, and I'm talking about suffering persecution and things right, like that. Right. People that do suffer in that regard are emulating the Lord in a very particular way. And it is the highest honor that we can have. It's not something that we want to go actively looking for, I don't yeah. think. I don't know anybody that would actually want to do that. But um, if you see me playing with my toe, it's because I got a toenail that's falling off, and it's oh, absolutely geez. driving me nuts. Just so, started off. I, I did. I just pulled it off. Why so, off? Yeah. What? Anyway. Yeah. Anyway. You? Uh, you know what happens? I've got one toe that years and years ago, I uh, was somebody startled me, and I pulled up my right foot, and it tore off my oh. big toe, uh, the the toe on my left foot. And, the toe. Uh, the toe no, nail. it wasn't, it wasn't my mom. Nail. But yeah, the, the toenail. Yeah, it <laughs> tore off the toenail. And ever since then, it falls off once or twice a year. And when that happens, it just, it's got a defect in it now. So the toenail grows out and then it splits and it falls off. And it's, yeah, it's terrible because it gets caught on everything. Yeah. So anyway, that's why I'm sorry. I don't mean to be fidgeting while I'm in the Bible class, but it's, it's driving me up a wall. And so I finally tore it off. But anyway. Um, Let's see here. Um, where are we? Okay. This family relationship, being in Christ and its suffering and glory, is not intended to bestow upon us a merely, uh, merely heaven either. Rather, Paul says that we are heirs of God. In other words, heaven is a side benefit of the true inheritance, which is God himself. That's where our inheritance is, is God himself. We will fellowship with him. We will be there with him in his presence. We'll see his, see his glory revealed. Heaven is just a side benefit of that, okay? God himself is our true reward. It is that which is of highest value. What is coming is so astonishing that we will marvel in it for all eternity. The revealing of our creator is an endless stream of wisdom, wonderment, and delight. So let me read you just a little bit of that. From Revelation chapter 22, it is something that we will never get tired of. I, you know, I, I can't even comprehend it in my own mind because there are times where I think, I don't even want to be alive today. I just want to, you know, I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like to live forever. Well, I'm thinking in a body that hurts. I'm thinking in a body that has to get up and do things I don't want to do. It's not going to be like that at all. So we'll read you uh, Revelation 22. I'll start with the first verse. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal proceeding from the throne of God and the Lamb. In the middle of the, its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And here we go, verse 3. And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. That is our reward right there. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Absolutely right, on their foreheads. So um, uh, I've got something coming up in a sermon. I don't think it's this week. It's coming up soon, though, on... Uh, 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 maybe it is this one. Well, anyway, I'm going to tell you in this class because not everybody watches it and you'll be reminded whenever I get to the sermon. Anyway, um, we were not created 
to work. Somebody emailed me about this uh, a question from Ecclesiastes, and uh, Solomon is talking about working under the you know under the sun and the toil and the utility of labor, and uh, he says I'm just not getting the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, I'm, and I explained to him what the key was so that he would read the passage and he would get it, okay? But I said, that is a false assumption that we're making when we start reading Ecclesiastes saying that we are made to, because you hear it in sermons all the time, the Lord created man to work, right? You hear it all the time. He created us to work. And so we're to be out physically working. And they use the Genesis account to show us that we are made to work. It's, let me take you there right now, because this is one of the benefits of heaven. We will not be working, okay? That, that in, we're not supposed to be working right now. It says right here, when, when we get to the sermon, I'll define it again. And I can't remember if it's this week or next week or whatever. But anyway, it says... Um, Verse 8, Genesis 2, 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. The word there is Yanach, he rested him in the garden. He didn't put him there to work, he made him outside of the garden, and he put him in the garden, okay? And then you get down to verse, um, let's see here, um, of 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him, rested him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. I'm sorry, that's not correct. That is not a proper translation. The uh, it, it, I'm, it, There's a gender discord if you do that. It would be like saying, um, this is male and this these two are female. It doesn't match. The words don't match. And uh, a guy named Thomas Howe, who I studied under at uh, Southern Evangelical Seminary, did an evaluation of this. And there are two words that do match, which the same words can be translated differently. Tend and keep can also be translated as worship and serve, not tend and keep. And we were never put in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep the garden. The Lord made the garden. We were there to enjoy the garden, what the Lord had given us. We went into the garden to worship and serve our Creator. That was the purpose of our establishment in the garden, and it was what we were designed for. How do I know that's true? Is because on the last pages of the Bible, it says we will do two things. We will worship God, and we will serve God. Everything that was lost in Genesis is replaced in a, the uh, book of Revelation, okay? The tree of life is taken away. The tree of life is given. There's no curse. There is no curse. Everything in there. So why would we have to work tend and keep the garden and then in the end worship and serve the creator no it's a mistranslation because people have something in their head and we need to understand that that we have a job in this world and it is not to work i love to work it's one of my favorite things to do in the whole world but that is not our job our job is to worship our creator and it is to serve our creator and if we are working and doing those two things then our work is proper back to the book of Ecclesiastes. If we are working in order to make a lot of money to go on vacation, that is not the right idea. Once again, back to the book of Ecclesiastes. You're starting to see that the book of Ecclesiastes has two different aspects to it. And I'll tell you what it is so that when you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it will make sense to you. Because if you read it without this, it makes no sense. He says one time, the best thing for a man to do is to work and to enjoy his labor of his hands. And then the next page, he says, working is terrible. It's brutal. It's vain. He's giving a contrast. Life under the heavens or life under the sun. It's your choice, people. If you are living for your life under the heavens, meaning worship and serving the Lord, 
then you are living properly. If you're living life under the sun, meaning the toil of the sun, and I'm working to get through the next day so I can make enough money to buy that BMW, it is not profitable, okay? Life under the heavens, life under the sun. Read the book again with that in mind and everything will fall into its place. And it's because people preach wrong sermons based on incorrect tra translations of the Bible that we have this idea in our head that we're supposed to be working in this life. No, working is something that we're supposed to do, but that is not what we are supposed to be doing. Whether it's work or whether it's play, we are supposed to be worshiping and serving, okay? Everything is supposed to be geared towards that. So we'll go on. Yes? What about where it says if you don't work, you don't eat? Well, that's true. That's part of what we do, but that it falls under the the, we are to work. I'm not saying that we're not supposed to work. I'm saying that when we work, it is for a purpose. It is for the purpose of worshiping and serving. Okay. If you don't, and I just, it's funny you said that because I just typed that for our daily devotional yesterday. And then I finished up the second half of it today. So I could give you all of the information on that. I'm not going to because it's still 10 days away. But I just typed that one. If you And I was not friendly to the government of the United States that prompts people to not work because we are to work okay but that's not the purpose of it the purpose of working is to enjoy god in his creation and that's why i say when solomon says there's nothing better for a man to enjoy the work of his hands and the fruit of his labors in the next page he says that working hard is vanity vanity it's fruitless and you think the guy is insane no he's saying that there is a purpose behind working working is not an end in and of itself eating is you have to eat and so you have to work but even eating, what does Paul say? Let do everything to the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. The purpose of working is to glorify God. The purpose of eating is to glorify God. Everything is for his glory or it is for personal satisfaction. The first is good. The second is pointless. So that's that's that answer to that? Okay, good. Well, if you know that... Garden, he put them in the garden there. That's the worship and serve. But then she picks the fruit and they eat it. And he says, By the sweat of your brow, you're going to. That's right. Because that was part of the curse. Yeah, that was. That's absolutely the right. The working actually was yeah. part of the curse. Yeah. Is that Sergio? Yes. I knew you were sitting in front of the yes. camera. I knew it and I wasn't going to say anything to you, but I knew that was the case. Yeah, that's why I always get rid of those chairs and I got rid of the wrong chair today. I'm supposed to get rid of those two. And I thought, I'm not going to say anything, but. Uh, because uh, it was my fault. But anyway, sorry, people. I, I know that he was blocking the camera. I just, it was yes. my fault for not moving that chair. And by Thank the way, you, Sergio. you noticed I'm bald. Yeah. Just let you know. <laughs> Thank you, Sergio. Okay. Anyway, so we'll go on with this uh, particular verse. Uh, the uh, Yeah, I've got that life application. Then we'll go into the next verse. To be an heir of God is a concept that we will never fully comprehend. Throughout the ages of ages of ages, we will be no, no, no. ceaselessly, endlessly, seeing the riches of God and beholding the marvel and majesty of his glory, okay? As this is so, why should we draw back from suffering for Christ now? The highest honor of this earthly walk will be rewarded with the greatest glory of heaven's treasures, okay? Remind me, if I ever do that again, remind me to move that chair, because once we're started, I'm not going to interrupt the class like that, but anyway, so I, and I, as soon as I saw you on the internet, I knew that was the case. I, I, I mean, I actually knew it from before, but I knew that was Sergio emailing. Anyway, uh, verse 8, 18. Jim, 18. Oh, right. So I was too busy getting comfortable in my new seat here. I consider 
that our present suffering sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Okay, close enough. Right here, he says four. Four refers directly back to the preceding thought. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. That's the four. Our suffering in Christ may not be what we hope for, but despite it, there is a promise of glorification ahead. This is what Paul is telling us, and then he gives us words to comfort us about these things. Referring to himself in the third person in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he tells us that he was caught up to the third heaven. While there, he heard inexpressible words, which was not lawful for a man to utter. If the hearing of paradise was beyond our authorized knowledge, imagine what the seeing and experiencing must be like. From one who had experienced firsthand the glory to come, he considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with what lay ahead. That's the four. We may suffer. It may be terrible. It may be the worst thing in the world, but it doesn't compare to what lies ahead. And that's what we need to focus on is not the now, but what's coming ahead. Okay. And Paul knew suffering like most of us never will. In 2 Corinthians 11 verses 22 through 29, he cites many of the trials and discomforts he had faced. Alone with his other, along with his other infirmities, he was truly a man who would know. But to him, they were nothing. He knew and he understood what was coming in an intimate way. And so he, with this wonderful knowledge, implores us to follow in the footsteps of faith. Just as he had this certainty for himself, he shares to his reader the glory which will be revealed later in us. He will pass on the same sentiment to the readers in Corinth. When he does, he makes a contrast between the suffering and the glory. No matter how immense the suffering now, he says it is light. It's nothing in contrast to the glory of the eternal weight, which is found, let me read it to you, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Well, you know, the Lord told him in chapter 9, he says what things he's going to suffer for my name. That's right. Chapter 9 of Acts. Yeah. That's absolutely right. He says, I, I will show him all that he must suffer for yeah. my name. And he knew it was lying ahead. And as he was going through it, it certainly wasn't nice. But he was able to endure because he knew of the hope of glory you know, which lay ahead. That second Timothy says, I finished that. I course. finished I, the I've race. Done I've done that. Absolutely <laughs> right. He's, okay, so uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For our light affliction which is but for a moment. I mean, you think of it, 70 years, it seems like a long time and it's painful and just a moment. It's a passing moment. Is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Well, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. It says in the Psalms or Isaiah, Isaiah says that all men are like grass. They come up like the grass, the sun beats on it and it, it withers away and that's what our life is like it's just a passing wind it's a vapor then we treat it like it's the most important thing in the world and i shouldn't have any pain and i should have a you know a, a nice car and i should have all of these things it is temporary paul went without all the time and he understood that this is just a temporary passing thing he had a hint of glory that he says is so inexpressible i can't utter it i can't even tell you about it so when he says that think about that this is another one, why I don't believe in these visions of people going to heaven and, you know, it, the book is written and then two years later they find out the guy lied, all right? And you hear it all the time. It's because Paul says, I cannot utter what I saw in the third heaven. 
Well, if Paul can't, then guess what? Nobody's going to. Don't read those books. Don't waste your time on them. Don't spend the money on those stupid books. And don't listen to people on YouTube that say, I went to heaven and I saw this, or I went to hell and I saw that. I don't care what they think they saw. They did not see that. All right? People have visions when they you know, are under uh, medicine. We, our brains go through things. We have seizures. Our minds make things up in dreams every single night. That does not mean it is reality. If Paul could not utter what he saw, then nobody will. We have no access into heaven at this point. I do not believe one story of it. That doesn't mean I don't believe the people saw something, but I do not believe the story is what they think it is. And for many of them, it's just made up stuff. People make up stuff. They sell the book. They make a lot of money. And then you find out that they were lying all along. Don't read that kind of stuff. We have this. It tells us that it's not for us to know yet. We will. And when we get there, we're going to say, woohoo. Okay. So uh, let's see here. Um, uh, I've read you 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18. Life application. What is your pain? It will be healed for eternity. What is your sorrow? It will be exchanged for everlasting joy. What is your worry? It will be swapped out for comfort throughout the ages. If this is true, then the hope of it should carry you through the moment with peace and contentment. Place your cares on the Lord, for he cares for you. Okay? 819, that'll be our last verse of the day. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Okay. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Close, a little bit different, but very close. Okay, in this subsection, verses 18 through 28, Paul uses the term for five times in various ways. For I consider, for we know, etc. In the preceding verse, for was given to explain comparisons between the suffering of this current walk and the glory to come. The for now is used to build on that concept of glory. This is important to consider because if there are 10,000 commentaries on this verse, there are surely 10,000 various opinions on what it exactly means. It is an extremely complicated verse to pin down. All right? So don't think that what you're hearing from me has got it all figured out. This is a really complicated verse. Therefore, looking to the progression of the thought, what is what it is built from and where it is leading to should help us to provide the clearest sense. This is needed because even translations differ. As you saw, there was just a minor difference, but there it, it makes a big difference, sure. okay? Is this section speaking of the creation or the creature? If it is about the creature, is it, is, is it speaking of all creation using a, I'm sorry, if it's speaking, yeah, that's correct. If it is speaking about the cre creature, is it speaking of all creation using a generic term for all of the various aspects of creation? Or is it speaking of the living creatures and creation only? Or humans only? If humans, is it speaking of Gentiles, Jews, or both? All of these have been proposed and well defended by great and honorable scholars. I can tell you that this verse here was enough to drive me up a wall because of the conflicting opinions of what people think is being said. That's why I say you have to go back a few verses and you have to go forward a few verses in order to hopefully gain what is being said. You can't just take the verse out and say, I'm going to evaluate this as a standalone, okay? The, those are just a few, a few of the commentaries that were written about that. And these were people that, as I said, very notable scholars, and they come up to completely different conclusions on this. As you can see, the differences start right away 
and they build into vast theological avenues. Fortunately, even with the complicated nature of the passage and the differing opinions, it is not a section which leads easily to heresy. And that's the good thing. Just because you have bad doctrine in this particular area doesn't mean you've gone off into a heretical highway, okay? So, to be wrong, although not a good thing, isn't something that would lead others to not comprehend the message of salvation, all right? That's an important precept here, because there are some verses that if you get them wrong, you've you've gone down the heresy highway, all right? Verse 21 will state that the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of creation, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's verse 21. And because the creation or creature, depending on the translation, is being tied in with what happens to the children of God, it is likely that what Paul is speaking of is the whole creation, all of it. Obviously, creation itself can't eagerly wait in the truest sense. So what this means is that Paul is using personification to make his point. The creation is eagerly waiting. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, it creation grown. What? Yeah, it creation. Yeah, creation grown. can't grow. It's personified. It, yeah, it's said here. Really. I understand that. Grown. That's that's what I'm saying. He's using personification in order for us to understand what is going on. That's why I'm saying it probably speaks of all creation because the creatures grown, creation doesn't grow unless it's a you know an earthquake causing the earth to grow. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the pains of creation. But you're absolutely absolutely well, right on that. Jesus wrote in. He says that these people be quiet. The, the stones will stones cry will out. Cry so he's using know, personification yeah. of the stones himself. Absolutely, and that is what I believe Paul is speaking of here. This is a fallen world which is eagerly waiting for its return to how it originally was intended to be. As I said. God made the garden, man was placed, he was rested in the garden. That's how it was supposed to be. There was no fall, there were no thorns and thistles, there was none of that kind of stuff. There was no sweat of your brow and the sweat going down to your nose and dropping off the end of it into the ground and rewatering the ground. There was nothing of that. It was paradise, it was him to be in that garden worshiping and serving as creator, okay? And that's where we are going to be heading back to, all right? The creation is eagerly waiting for this to return, all right? It's not an ideal state. When man fell, the creation fell with him. This is evidenced by Genesis 3.17. We'll go there first. Genesis 3.17, which says... Yield. You what? It yields, uh, what, some kind of briars or Yeah, briars and stuff. It says, then to Adam, he said, because you have heeded the voice of your wife... And have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it. And then he goes into it for the next couple verses. Cursed is the ground for your sake, implying there was no curse of the ground before. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. That was not the ideal plan. Okay, the ideal plan was that we would be worshiping and serving the Creator without all of this toil and trouble forever. And I've said this before, if you read those verses of the curses that are given to Adam and his wife, every one of them points to Christ. Every single one of them. Cursed is the ground for your sake. He was brought out of, like a root out of dry ground. Christ is the root out of dry ground, according to Isaiah. In toil you shall eat of it. Okay, it says he toiled here on earth in the 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 uh you know the uh, for among humanity it says you'll do that all the days of your life both thorns and thistles thistles it shall bring forth for you speaking of the cross of christ the thorns and the thistles placed on his head 
okay? You shall eat of the herb of the field, okay? He was the Passover lamb, the bitter herbs that were provided at that time. He ate of it, and he also was it. Then the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, okay? His bread was the bread of affliction, and he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. All of it, the entire thing, just read it. It's all pointing to Christ, every single detail. The curse that he gave to man, he bore upon himself to redeem man. He bore the curse, okay? That's the one thing we can't forget is that everything in this book keeps leading us to Christ. And everything that Christ did was to lead us back to where we're supposed to be. Galatians said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. That's right, right out of the law itself. The law that he gave to Israel, he took that curse upon himself. Every single thing in the law, all of it points to what he did for us, to redeem us from the curse of the law in order to bring us back to paradise. So what he pronounced upon the man, he took upon himself so that we could participate in what he has for us, even since the creation itself. It, it's all just wonderful. And then it also goes into Genesis 9, verse 2. This curse continues on where it says, um, this is after the uh, flood. It says here, let me see, 9, verse 2. It says, and the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, implying that it wasn't there before, mm -hmm. right? So when we see the dinosaurs and men's tracks walking in it, they walk together, all right? Yes, there are dinosaur tracks that have men footprint in there. Some people deny that. I don't. It's, they have the riverbed that they found. And, you know, if you go to uh, one website and you read about the dinosaur tracks that have been found with human footprints in and next to them, all right, then you go to another atheist website and they'll say that didn't happen. Well, you know what? They have pictures of them, okay? So you've got riverbeds in Texas that have them. As far as I'm concerned, it did happen. And we know that it happened. How do we know that it happened? Because the book of Job says so. Job was an eyewitness to the behemoth and to Leviathan. Read them. They're not hippopotamuses, right? They're, there is no other thing on this planet at this time that can be described as they are. They say, oh, that's an alligator. It's not even close. Just read the description sometime. It says that the, the tail of behemoth sways like a tree. cedar tree, right? Has anybody ever seen an elephant's tail? It's like a pencil. It's teeny. Same thing with all of the other animals. They don't sway like cedar trees. Job walked with dinosaurs, okay? I just, I, I, I am adamant about this, is that we have a Bible that is not unsound. We have a Bible that is sound. It says that God created in seven days, six days, and on the seventh day he rested. No, those are literal days. I know I, one of the people that I like the most in this world, one a dear, dear friend of mine, he just goes back uh, probably three, four, five years, and we've stayed in communications together, and he says that I am teaching a false doctrine when I teach six-day creation, okay? I want you to know, I don't hate him because of that, but the Bible, tell me what the Bible says. Six it days. It says that God created in six days. It cannot be a false doctrine. It can, wait, it can be a misunderstanding of a doctrine. I may be misunderstanding the geological record, but it cannot be a false doctrine. It is impossible for me to be teaching a false doctrine when I teach six-day creation because that's what That's the Bible what says. says, okay? It, it, it cannot be. It can be anything other than that. It can be a misunderstanding. It can be my stupidity because I don't believe in evolution. Not one person, not one person in the history of the world until the time of Charles Darwin believed anything but a literal six-day creation. Not one. 
Okay, and then he came in, he introduced his error into our thoughts, and people got scared and said, see, and he's never been proven right on one precept. Not one precept of Darwinism has been proven true. We have no no record in the geologic or the archaeological record, not one bone to support evolution. Not one. There is not one bone of support for evolution. I teach six-day creation because that is what this book teaches, right. and I will do no other. Okay, I could be completely wrong, and I've lost nothing. But if I teach something other than what this Bible teaches, right. because I am scared of looking like an idiot, what? then I'm. Well, no, I'm saying if I was to do that, then I would be sinning against God, and I'm not going to do it. I will continue to teach, no matter how many people think I'm insane. I'm going to teach this doctrine, and I will always teach this doctrine because that's what this says. I guarantee you 100% when Moses wrote the Torah, he believed that God created in six days. Sure. He, 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 so either God is completely mis, misleading his people, completely misleading us, or he created in six days. Because when Paul wrote about creation, he wrote about it believing in a six-day creation. There is no other option for those people. They literally believed what it said. Now, they may have been wrong. But I'm telling you, then that means that God was misleading them in a precept that they held fast to. God was not misleading us. It is not a false doctrine. It is the correct doctrine. Okay? I don't hate my friend over that either. When he said that, I went back and I said, I don't care what you think. This is what I'm going to teach. But I love the guy. in the Bible? What? Of course he does. Well, then how can he think anything else? Do you know how many views on evolution and creation there are? It's just... It, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. People <laughs> teach what they teach. Long-term creation, punctuated creation. Oh they have all of these different creation models, okay? They can be as wrong as they want, and they can say to me, I can be as wrong as I want. One is true and one isn't, but it, it, it doesn't make any difference. In the end, there's only one correct answer. And I believe that it is what this says, literal six. I understand that. Well, listen. No, 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 no. Let's, it's time to close. We've got to finish this first. But let me just give you an example so you can see this. The word yom means day. Okay? It means day. Tell me what the day of the Lord is. The day, the day of the Lord is the seven years of tribulation. So yom doesn't always mean a literal day. Okay? You see what I'm saying? Okay. All of a sudden, you have different views on things. There, and I could take you through hundreds of different permutations of what it says in the Genesis account, where people have gone through and they've picked it apart and they've said the word this word here means, and it, it, they they have come to their conclusions based on the evolutionary model or based on the the um, you know the what's the the geological model. And I can defend every single one of them. People will say, well, look, granite is, we know it's 8 billion years old and sandstone is only 352,000 years old, right? Well, guess what? If he created granite in one second and he created limestone in one second, they both have the appearance of age. One looks older and the other doesn't. So we don't want to get upset about this. But people will come at an issue with presuppositions and they will not change their mind unless they are willing to say, I could be wrong. I did that. I was an evolutionist. I grew up in Sarasota, Florida. I went to River, Riverview High School, right? That's what they taught me. It was the hardest thing for me to accept was two things, not King James onlyism because that's what I was first taught, and evolution. Those were the two things I thought, I just, I can't believe that God created in six days. 
But after reading the Bible and after thinking about it and after thinking it through, it's not only possible, it's the only option within the Bible. It's the only one, and I've shown that. It does not allow for anything else, okay? But let's not get in there. Let's finish this verse. we got to get done with this. Um, okay, uh, uh, I read those two verses from Genesis. The living and non-living creation has been frustrated. The ground was cursed, non-living, and this curse has affected the plant life. Animal life is also not as it was originally designed. The 360-day calendar of the Bible does not match the calendar that we currently use, okay? It's 364 days plus a little bit. That's why we add it a day on every couple of years, all right? Thus, the revolution around the sun is not as it once was, and so forth. In other words, all of creation, although magnificently timed and orchestrated, is still not as it was intended to be. The explanation for us, or for this, is to be found in the next verse. But what is certain from this verse is that this fallen creation, as Paul says, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. When the sons of God are revealed, the creation will be restored to the way it was originally intended. Isaiah speaks about this on several occasions. He speaks about what it'll be like during the millennial reign of Christ. And that's the way it was originally intended. Actually, it's not completely that way, but it's a step towards that way. The final completion of it will be in the book of Revelation. Anyway, life application. There are complicated passages in the Bible, like the one that we just read, which people disagree on, which do not lead to heresy. Okay, I will say this about the creation issue, just so that you understand. It is not a heresy to believe in a long-term creation. It's not a heresy at all. It is a heresy to believe that man evolved. Yes. There is a difference between the two. The earth could be 15 billion years old, and it does not affect doctrine in the Bible. If man evolved, then we do not have original sin. There's no such thing as original sin. If there is no original sin, because man cannot evolve into original sin. If there's no original sin, then Christ didn't need to come. Okay, we have no need for a redeemer. That is a heresy. So there is a difference. Long-term creation, we can debate that until we're blue in the face, and people will find out when, how wrong they were when they stand before the Lord. But when it comes to the state of man, we have to be precise because the reason why the Bible was written was for us to understand the process of redemption. And that process of redemption is Jesus. And if we don't need Jesus because we didn't... Uh, if original sin was not brought into the creation, that is a heresy. There's a real problem there, okay? So, and that's why do you think that we have this debate about long-term creation and short-term creation and evolution? It's because that's what the devil wants us to do. Yes. He wants us to take our eyes off of our Redeemer and believe that we evolved. And therefore, when that happens, it doesn't matter. We were bugs at the beginning, and we're bugs now, and we're going to be gone, and that's what they want us to believe, okay? So that, we do not want to get into that. Anyway, so we, yeah, we embrace it. There are also concepts in the Bible which, when misrepresented, do lead to heresy, okay? Let us evaluate these things which are of less weight without arrogance or accusation towards others. Like I said, I have no problem with people believing in long-term creation. It's not a heretical issue. They're wrong, that's fine, but let us hold firm to the truths which would otherwise lead to heresy, not tolerating that which condemns precious souls. And when you have certain doctrines that are not heretical in nature, okay, 
but they can lead to heresy. Like I said at the beginning of the class, we have to call them out because that is what we are called to do in Christianity is to preach and teach the word of God accurately. And anytime you allow even the smallest amount of bad doctrine in there, you're allowing the possibility of it leading to a heresy. So I have no problem with defending my faith. No problem. You know what? I was listening to Rush today. I got a lot of time to listen to Rush because I had to go all the way up to University Parkway and then back down here. And Rush said he had a term that he used. Um, when you have a business, you're on uh, like the news media, you want to have more people. You want to have more viewers. And when you uh, alienate people, then you uh, lose viewers and you, you lose you know, revenue and everything else. And there's a term that he used, and I can't remember it right now, but he said that you have certain people that say, well, I don't care about Rush, okay? It doesn't matter either way. Or they will say, I hate Rush or I love Rush, okay? So you have all of this in every type of business you're in. Rush is exactly half and half. There's no, I don't care. It's either I listen to him and I like him or I don't like him. That's it. Either people will listen or the people won't listen. It's not like uh, NFL football. Well, I don't really care about the kneeling. That's the point he was making about NFL football. He says they are working against themselves because all they're doing is they're losing people over this stupid little issue. Rush said, I am in a unique position because it is either this or this. And I thought that is exactly how I want this church to be. I want people in here to say either I agree or I don't agree. Because that is what the Bible wants us to do. It wants us to be without ambiguity. It wants us to be without vagueness. And it wants us definitely to be without waffling. God wants us to handle this word properly. And if somebody doesn't like, you know, the way that I teach, there are a million other places they can go to get their ears tickled or to follow the doctrine they think is correct. It doesn't mean that I hate them. It just means that I am not going to change what I believe simply to gain numbers. Right. That's not what it's about. Anybody that would do that should not be teaching the Bible. Right. If, if that is their goal, is to gain numbers or to be popular, then they've got the wrong job. And I just feel like Rush. He said, it took me four years to get over the fact that some people didn't like me. He said, was, and I'm going to tell you what, it is a really difficult thing to get angry emails and to get accusational emails it's not going to change what I believe. It's not going to change one single thing of what I believe. Okay, we got to go. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for the surety of it, though we may disagree on parts of it. That's fine. People are entitled to go to other churches. They can go to other uh, Bible studies, or they can study under me and accept the good and uh, let the bad go. That's people's choice. But we all have to stand before you, and we all have to stand before you with the doctrine that we incorporate into ourselves. And so I would ask that you would help each one of us to feel steadfast in the doctrine that we believe, to not waffle on our convictions, and to always regard you as our highest joy and our highest motivation in everything we do, that we would glorify you, that we would bring honor to you, and that we would cherish what you did through our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Let me turn this baby off. I know I'm a little long today, and I'm sorry. Oh. Right? What's Nothing. 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 You're not supposed to lie. Let's see here. Break. Okay. There we go. Okay. Have a wonderful night, everybody. We love you. Take care. Oh, I can walk. It's just sitting down and then getting up. That's all.
No, it just when well, you fall off a roof from 25 feet, you're gonna hurt. But it's it's you know, that's all right. These temporary pains are not worth the, whatever the verse he just said. Worth the uh, suffering that we face now. Whatever. Anyway, not tolerating. No, yeah, I, I, uh, 